Hello, and welcome to episode 119 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Hope. Among other things, I'm formerly incarcerated, a policy analyst, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with Elliot Young about his book, Forever Prisoners, about the history of immigrant detention in the United States. Elliot Young is a professor in the history department at Lewis and Clark College. He is the author or co-author of several books and many articles, including Forever Prisoners, the book that we'll be discussing today. In addition, he is the co-founder of the Teposlan. I'm not going to say that one right. What's it? How would you pronounce it, Elliot? Teposlan Institute. <laughs> Uh, for Transnational History of the Americas. Mr. Young has also provided testimony in over 200 asylum cases. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Elliot Young. Thank you, Joshua, for having me. It's great to be on. Uh, My pleasure, as usual. Um, I always ask the same first question. It's kind of a comic book origin story question. How did you get from wherever you started in life to where you were writing a book about immigration and incarceration, or many books about immigration uh, and incarceration? That's a really great question. So I think my interest in Latin America uh, started when I was in college, and it was the 1980s, and there were lots of wars in Central America, which the US government was involved with. And so I got involved with solidarity work, with activism around that, and eventually decided to focus on the border, the place where Latin America and the United States meet, and on on immigration and migration. And my previous book was about the mobility of specifically of Chinese migrants in the mid 19th to mid 20th centuries, them crossing borders uh, from Canada, Mexico, Cuba to the United States and back and forth. And in the process of doing that, I got interested in the moments of immobility when when, uh, migrants got locked down in prisons or in detention facilities. So I undertook a sort of longer history of immigrant detention in the United States. And that's what ended up being forever prisoners. And do you have kind of an approach that you take towards uh, being a historian or about writing about history? Is there kind of a, uh, you know, do you follow a particular, what, what's your kind of, what's your way of approaching history when you write about it? So I like people-centered histories. I, I think that most, uh, most people relate and can identify with people with stories of of individuals or groups of individuals. So I try not to write uh, stories that are just theoretical or abstract or talk only about numbers. Now, when you talk about immigration, when you talk about criminal justice, there are usually lots of numbers and it's important to have those numbers to contextualize those stories. But what I try to do in all of my writing um, and in this book in particular is to take that broad, a story that's really about millions and millions of individuals and to talk about individual people, individual families and how they experience various types of incarceration over the course of the late 19th uh, century up until the present. And there's always kind of a um, kind of a uh, coming together, not always in a pleasant way, between history and politics. I think some one of the ways that we see that right now is in this kind of notion that there's certain kinds of things that uh, 
people in schools, et cetera, shouldn't teach, or, you know, there's certain stories that shouldn't be told. Uh, there's kind of a political attempt to uh, own history. And then there's also kind of the modernist versus postmodernist feeling about what truth really is and things like that. I don't want to get too esoteric, although I probably just did. Uh, kind of what's your approach to kind of how do you navigate that space, I guess? Yeah, well, I think history is always contested. Historians understand this. Um, history is about various interpretations of the past based on the available evidence. And uh, reasonable people could have different interpretations of that. Um, but what we try to do in history is base it in, in actual evidence. So we're not just giving our opinions on things we're interpreting, usually documents, but it could also be oral histories. It could be other kinds of, of, of evidence from the past. Now, I think you're right about in the 1980s and 1990s, postmodernism and deconstructionism led many of us, uh, especially those of us who considered ourselves on the left, to question truth and universal truths. And I think that was important um, exercise to understand how truth itself is is constructed, how narratives are constructed. But I think, you know, the danger now where we've gone sort of through the looking glass to the other side, other side is we're, we're in this kind of post-truth world where people just say whatever they want, um, whether they have evidence for it or not, and things that are demonstrably false, like, you know, Trump's claims about the election, and, and that's just accepted. So I think I still hold on to uh, to to certain facts and and things that happened, like the Holocaust did happen. That that is a fact, and there there are other facts that are important. Now, beyond just establishing the basic facts, there's a whole range of interpretations and arguments about what those facts actually mean. There could be competing versions of you know what happened. And I think that that's what makes history interesting is, is looking at those competing versions and talking about them. But in terms of ideas, either from the left of the or the right of banning certain books, banning certain ideas, I, I find that um, a horrible notion and anti-democratic. And I think that we need to be able to uh, grapple with, contest, discuss, any, all ideas, um, even the ones of like, the ones that are demonstrably false, I think we should take those on as well. Your book is called Forever Prisoners, which at least for me brings to mind some pretty specific prisoners in very specific geography. But your book is about a lot more than the prisoners held in sort of shadow prisons or in Guantanamo Bay. Do you wanna talk about your vision for this book and why you tied it to that name? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you made that connection. That's exactly where the, the title comes from, the Guantanamo prisoners in, in particular. And what I was noticing is that through the history of immigrant detention from late 19th century through to the present, uh, various groups of immigrants have been caught in indefinite detention, basically locked up in, in prisons or detention facilities. Um, the government has been unable to deport them because they haven't don't have agreements with the countries where they want to deport them. And the individuals there are essentially 
um, forever, will be forever prisoners. Now, eventually they are either deported or some of them are let out. Many of these people end up ended up dying in, in prison. So they were in that sense forever prisoners. But I thought it was important to link up the, the rightlessness that um, immigrants in the United States experience and the kind of extraterritorial uh, perpetual imprisonment of you know, so-called terror suspects. And I do that, I did that with a little bit of trepidation because I think, you know, as soon as you say terror suspects, um, people immediately think of like the worst of the worst and uh, the immigrants, you know, one could argue who are coming here for a better life or to escape persecution should not be in that category. But I think all people um, should be able to have their claims adjudicated in a court. And what we find in Guantanamo, like we find with immigrant detention, is that they don't really have, some people don't have full access to courts or legal representation. And so they're sort of uh, just uh, accused and assumed guilty and subject to this uh, most extreme form of deprivation of liberty, which is, uh, which is imprisonment at, without access to, you know, um, even the basics of bond hearings without access to legal redress for their um, incarceration. If there's kind of a face or a story of the book or in, throughout the book, it's uh, Myra Machado. And during the Trump years, and really somewhat in the Obama and somewhat definitely some in the Biden years, we'll talk about it a little bit later, uh, we heard a lot about why we should deport immigrants who came to the United States and committed crimes while situated in the United States. But the faces deployed to push that narrative were different than the majority, probably, of the faces who are most often deported. Can you tell a little bit of the story of Myra Machado? Sure. And uh, I would just add that, you know, under... Obama, even in his second term, when he said, we're going to focus on felons, not families, which is problematic in a, a whole lot of ways, even in the, in that second sure, term. Sure, because felons and families can, both of those things can be true at the same time. Exactly. One of the problems. Yeah. could be true at the same time. And, um, but even in that second, um, his second term, after he said that, the vast majority of people who were deported had no criminal conviction. So it's used as a way to gin up this deportation regime, um, but really the, um, the, the people who are most impacted have no criminal convictions. In the case of Myra Machado, she was brought to the United States uh, when she was five years old by her mother um, from El Salvador, which was at the time experiencing um, uh, a civil war, lots of violence. Um, she grew up in California and then eventually moved to Arkansas. When she was 18, she wrote a couple of hot checks, fraudulent checks, and she was convicted of that. And basically she did a sort of boot camp thing to get her for six months. She was pregnant at the time. The judge sort of, um, looked favorably on her and her, her future. And, and that was kind of the end of it. She did, did her time for that, um, that offense. But then 10 years later, 2015, she was picked up on a traffic violation. And by that point under Obama, they had expanded the, um, 
deputizing of local law enforcement as immigration officials, officers. And so when she was picked up on that traffic violation, um, the ICE deputized officer ran her name through the database, found out she did not have status in the country and she was put into immigrant detention. And then the issue of her um, previous criminal conviction came up. And the laws had been from the late 1980s up until the mid 2000s, basically increasingly tied criminal convictions to immigration outcomes. So in other words, if you had a criminal conviction, especially one that was considered an aggravated felony, which is something that's made up in the, um, the immigration law, what counts as an aggravated felony, then you are barred from almost all kinds of asylum. And this particular charge, um, because she had failed to, even though she had served her time, she had failed to appear in court through some misunderstanding with the courts, it was considered an aggravated felony. And therefore she was barred from many types of relief. So when I came to hear about her case, which was in 2016, I was um, uh, an expert witness in her case against deportation. Um, she lost that case and her lawyer <coughs> appealed the case. And while the appeal was pending, she was deported back to El Salvador. A place where she hadn't been since she was five. Exactly. For all intents and purposes, she's the most Americanized person, you know, one can imagine in terms of speaking English, well, accent, I just, attitude. I just always think of it as like being, you know, sent to the surface of the moon as far as she knows. I mean, she doesn't, maybe she has family there, but it didn't seem like very much, at least in the way that you explained it. But it's somewhere she hasn't been. She doesn't know people. She doesn't have connections there. And now she's being sent there for the rest of her life. It just seems very cruel to me. I don't. Yeah. Know. And, and, and not only that, she had three U.S. citizen children who were left behind in Arkansas with her mother. And so she was separated from, you know, we think about um, separating families happening at the border, but anytime anyone is sent to prison um, and certainly deported, they're, they're seriously separated from their families. So she went to El Salvador. When she got there, she was harassed. Her story had been in the Los Angeles time. It had been in the Salvadoran press. And so she was harassed by officials in El Salvador when she returned, when she um, was finally living in this community. Gang uh, members were threatening her. And and so given all of those conditions and missing her family, she returned to the United States after a few months, lived with her family clandestinely for a year, and then was finally on another uh, minor traffic stop, was picked up again, put into, um, sent to Louisiana, put in a geo-run detention facility in, uh, in Gina, Louisiana, which is like four hours from New Orleans um, in a very remote part. And it was from there that I got a call from her um, in, I guess it was the spring of um, 
2019, I get a call from the um, LaSalle Detention Center and from Myra Machado, who was basically at that point representing herself. She had my phone number from when I served as an expert witness and asked whether I would help on her case. And I of course said I would um, at the time I was writing this book and I asked whether she would be um, interested in having her story told and she was. And then I was able to get her a pro bono lawyer from uh, Loyola University in New Orleans. And so we went through her hearing um, and she ended up losing that, that hearing and um, losing the appeal. And then it was appealed um, to the circuit court. And while the appeal was pending, this was in January of 2020, um, in the middle of the night, they just picked her up and sent her back again to El Salvador where she has been living um, since then, now living in San Salvador um, and actually helping other migrants, um, kids who have been left behind to reunite with their parents. So she's doing not only that amazing work, but she's also had through her own case kind of become a jailhouse lawyer and is helping her friends who she knew who were in detention as a kind of paralegal to, to help them fight, fight their cases. So she's kind of an extraordinary individual who's been able to um, not only fight for her case, but fight for other people. But she's still, I mean, she's in El Salvador. Her three kids are in Arkansas. She's separated from them. And it, I have been trying to um, work on her pardon in Arkansas because the only way for her to be able to try to petition for asylum is if she gets rid of that criminal charge and conviction. And so that process- So that can't even be a commutation. It has to be a full-on pardon, right? I think it has to be a full-on pardon. And to first do the pardon, she has to pay the restitution. So I raised the money to pay the restitution, got the um, DAs in Arkansas to agree. Everyone agrees the bank who's owed the money has agreed to a certain amount, but because they say the case is so old, they say, no, now it has to go like to a civil judge who has to change the order. In other words, the bureaucracy of the criminal justice is such that even for even if you have the resources, you know, and I've got various lawyers working on this, it has been impossible to actually just pay the money to get the restitution to be able to then follow the rest of the process. So, you know, given that, I can imagine people who don't have access to lawyers and other people advocating for them. Um, basically, it's a system that's set up to keep people incarcerated and keep people sort of on the wrong side of the law. You say at one point in the book that what makes immigrants forever prisoners is not just the indeterminate time they spend locked up, but they often remain vulnerable to detention and other forms of restriction, which I think you just explained an example of. After release, they're truly they're never truly free. Non-citizens live in perpetual fear of incarceration and deportation. Uh, you know, why do you think that we're to a large extent kind of for lack of a better term, okay with this as a society? Why have we come to this point in a, in theoretically a nation of immigrants? So, you know, a lot of people oftentimes when they look at the statistics about 
you know, 1.8 million cases, immigration ca cases, backlog, and all, all of the, you know, sort of dysfunction in the immigration system. They say the system is broken. But another way of looking at it is the system is working just as it was intended to work, which is to keep a certain class of people, immigrants, um, vulnerable, easily exploitable, um, and, you know, so that they could be paid uh, low wages. And when they're cheated out of their wages or they experience workplace harassment, they're, they are afraid to actually fight against it. And so I think it's, it certainly serves certain economic interests. It also serves um, this interest of creating, uh, you know, this vision of a white uh, utopian America without uh, immigrants of color. And that's who the, the immigration policies, you know, for the throughout the 20th century have been directed against. Um, the deportations have been directed against. It's over 94% of the people who are deported are, um, are black or brown people from Mexico and, uh, and Central America. So it's a very targeted kind of policy, targeted enforcement. And it's, um, I think it's very clear that it's based in racial animus in eugenics notions from the 1920s, which on the surface have been um, changed in the 1965 legislation, but continue through enforcement to be directed against particular groups of people um, to construct this sort of white ethno state in the United States, but also to create a class of easily exploitable labor. Um, so, you know, I think many people, when they hear about, you know, they kind of think of immigration as kind of like, maybe if they're really savvy, they know about the Obama stuff. They definitely know about the Trump stuff. They might know about the Biden stuff. But before that, I don't think they see the context of this. Kind of one of the, I think, things that your book does really well is kind of put everything in kind of a long-term historical context about how this is really a story that's been told for a long, you know, that's being told over a long period of time. One of the characters in that book we already talked about, Myra Machado, I think is McNeil Island Prison in Washington. Can you kind of start that story with telling us a little bit of the history of Chinese detention? Sure. So um, the first, I mean, historians argue about this, but the first federal legislation um, about directed at immigrants is the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. Um, and that legislation, there's a General Immigration Act, is very clear that it's about keep, keeping out Chinese laborers in, in particular. And so that um, legislation led to Chinese migrants being picked up and put in detention and eventually deported. But when they first started the system, they really hadn't created the bureaucracy to do that. So you end up um, in this prison island off the coast of Tacoma near Seattle, um, which was set up in 1875. And basically it's the only federal penitentiary on the West Coast at that time, the first one. Um, so you're getting people from Alaska all the way down to California um, sent to this prison. They start picking up in the mid 1880s, all of these Chinese who had come across the border from Canada clandestinely. And you've got a rise in the mid 1880s of anti-Chinese 
um, xenophobic sentiment, um, purging of towns like in Tacoma, 1885, there's a famous riot, but it's all up and down the Pacific coast of white, um, oftentimes working class um, unions saying that the Chinese are posing competition to them and they rise up and, and forcibly kick Chinese out of, out of their towns. So those um, Chinese get picked up, they get charged with having entered the country unlawfully or being in the country unlawfully, and they get sent to McNeil Island prison. Um, but what's interesting is that at that time, when they get sent there, they, um, they get sent there and sentenced to six months of hard labor. That is not immigrant detention. That's a criminal, um, a criminal charge, but they had not had a court hearing, a, a judicial hearing. And so this raises all sorts of questions for people, lawyers who are looking at this, like how could these people not have had a, a court hearing and yet they're receiving criminal sentences. Um, they try to deport those Chinese to Canada because it was assumed they had come from Canada, but Canada at that point had a head tax which charged Chinese about $50 to come in. The Chinese didn't have the money, so the Canadians refused to accept the Chinese and therefore they were brought back to McNeil Island and you end up having the Chinese languishing on McNeil Island for years um, while the federal government is trying to figure out, US government, what to do with them. They eventually begin deporting them all the way back to China. And it's from there that we begin to see this whole growth of the detention and deportation regime that we know so well today. Um, but in this early period, it was really ad hoc. They were trying to figure it out. They were operating outside of the law. Um, eventually the Supreme Court in 1896 steps in and says, you cannot um, give someone a criminal sentence without a judicial hearing. So basically what, what they say is you can put immigrants in detention pending removal, but that is not punishment. That is just like an administrative bureaucratic procedure. Um, what you can't do is sentence them. So from then on, they they begin just putting them in pending removal. Um, Which is also part of a long history of the court allowing people to essentially be incarcerated, only calling it something other than incarceration, which is, this is not the only instance of that. Right, and we could think, I mean, jails essentially are mostly filled with people who have not been convicted of a crime and um, who ends up in jail are poor people who cannot afford bonds or don't have lawyers to be able to get, get them out. And, and so, yeah, so those forms of detention end up um, criminalizing people before, if ever they are convicted of a crime. So, yeah, to the person who's incarcerated, it doesn't make, you know, there's a, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's a person who's been incarcerated in Illinois for 30 years who has never, never been tried for a crime, you know, because of civil commitment laws, which is something that you do bring up in the book. Um, and so there's this history, I think, along through history of things like this. And I also think the second story you tell is about uh, Nathan Cohen. 
And I think most of us think of mass incarceration kind of starting in the, the, the late 70s or early 80s. Uh, but you suggest that there kind of has been mass incarceration kind of ongoing in different ways for a long time, for instance, through mental health facilities or what are called mental health facilities. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, so I started noticing in doing this research that a lot of um, a lot of immigrants, foreign-born people, were ending up in these, you know, what they would call then at the time lunatic asylums, and that the, there was a disproportionate rate of um, foreign-born people who ended up there. And so I started to look into it, and I was shocked and surprised to learn that really in the early part of the 20th century, the vast majority, not just of non-citizens, but of citizens were incarcerated in mental hospitals and not in jails or prisons. And so if you look at the rate of institutionalization um, per the population, you'll see that the rate is pretty much the same in the early 20th century as it is at the end of the 20th century if you include things like mental um, mental institutions. And so understanding that, I started to look into this case of this Russian Jewish uh, immigrant who had been in Brazil for several years, comes into the United States um, in 1912 through Ellis Island, ends up in the South in Georgia, then Jacksonville, Florida, and through a series of things that happens in his life, he loses his business, his uh, wife runs away with his best friend. He, he has a kind of mental breakdown um, and becomes mute. He is then put into a, a hosp mental hospital in Baltimore and the immigration authorities come and say, according to the rules, if you were considered insane when you arrived, you're eligible to be deported. And so he is then brought back to Ellis Island, put on a ship to be deported back to Brazil. The Brazilians say, well, he's not a Brazilian citizen. We don't want him. Um, they go to Argentina, try to drop him off there. The Argentines don't want him. He ends up <laughs> taking the ship all the way back to New York, spending several more months in Ellis Island. They try again to deport him. He goes back. Um, again, he's rejected. The Russians don't want him because they're trying to get rid of Jews at that time from Russia. Um, and so he ends up back in, in the harbor in New York and essentially is one of these people who was called then in the press, like the wandering Jew, the man without a country, because no one would wanted to accept him. Finally, with the intervention of some aid organizations like HIAS, which still exists, the Hebrew immigrant, AIDS Society um, and the Knights of um, Pathias, who, which is a fraternal organization, they, they agree to pay for his um, upkeep in a private sanatorium in Connecticut. So he's let off the ship and he, um, and he ends up in that sanatorium in Connecticut and within a year he dies. And he's only like in his mid thirties and he's finally buried in Staten Island. So that case just is one example of someone who ends up um, in part through the process of migration, sort of undergoing this mental breakdown. And then because of that gets deported, but also is unable to be deported. So ends up in this sort of liminal space of 
indefinite detention plying the seas between New York and, and South America. And it's kind of a Kafka-esque story um, of just this like bizarre um, situation that he was in where, you know, he couldn't land anywhere legally. And, you know, the only place they would land him was in the prison in Ellis Island. Speaking of Kafka-esque uh, stories, one of the most disturbing parts of the book, in my opinion, although it's all pretty disturbing, <laughs> is the story of a person from Japan who was living in Peru only to be extradited to the United States in a camp during World War II. What should people know about the enemy alien program? Yeah, so these things, like if you if you told someone these stories, you know, if someone told me these stories, I'd be like, this is fiction, like this is crazy stuff. But this actually happened in World War II. There was a, a enemy alien program that was organized by the FBI to go to Latin America and get the cooperation of Latin American governments to pick up people considered enemy aliens. So Japanese, Germans, and Italians. Now, the people who ended up on these lists were not in any way necessarily um, uh, working with the governments of Japan or Germany or Italy, they just happened to be residents there who were of that that heritage. And oftentimes it was their business competitors who would sort of leak their names to the FBI and get them on these lists. They were then forcibly put on ships and brought to the United States. And then when they were in the United, when they landed in the United States, their passports had been taken on the ship. They, they were declared to have been illegal entrants because they arrived in the United States without permission to be in the United States. And of course they arrived in the United States at the point of a gun, not by their choice. So it, it's the most bizarre legal reasoning. Um, and they end up in these uh, enemy alien camps in Texas and New Mexico during the war. And even after the war ended, um, Peru didn't want to accept back the Japanese Peruvians. And so they were kind of stuck in detention. They had the choice of returning to Japan, but there, Japan was after the war, not a very um, uh, likely place that one would want to return to. And many of the um, people were actually children who were born in Peru. So they were Peruvian citizens, but Peru didn't want them back. Um, and so th these cases were brought to court. And what the court said is, um, we have no jurisdiction over what happens outside of the territory of the United States. So if they were kidnapped by the US government and brought to this country, we don't, we have no opinion about that. Um, so as far as we're concerned, they are illegal. Oh, that's just awesome, by yeah. the way. I mean, that's. Yeah, the courts like sort of put on these blinders to like what what is common sense and say, you know, we can't look at that. We can't look at the other thing. Um, and as a result, you know, thousands of these Japanese Peruvians ended up in detention. Um, some of them were eventually returned to Japan or some. Am I wrong? There were there was forced labor involved, too, right? Yeah, so in these camps, there was um, labor going on, um, forced labor. I mean, some of the people refused, like the um, uh, Seichi Higashide, the person who I um, sort of focus on, 
he refused to do work. And I think you, you could refuse many of the other people um, did, did do work um, on the camps. And they also used some of those people who were in detention to sort of farm them out to local farms to work as labor there. And in fact, um, Seichi Higashida and his family, after the war, end up being transferred to Seabrook Farms in New Jersey, which was a food processing plant. So they're essentially on a private, in a private corporate sort of detention facility where they're working for this private corporation, but they're, um, they're essentially in detention. They're not allowed to leave that, that area. And eventually some of them, like the Higashides, get permission through an act of Congress to petition to remain in, in the United States. And so they are able to stay in the United States, but um, obviously this history uh, shows the sort of extreme trauma they had experienced. And since then there have been attempts to seek redress or reparations from the US government, like with the Japanese Americans who were interned. But what the US government said is, you know, that the Japanese Latin Americans are, because they weren't citizens are in a different category and so they have never received um, compensation, reparations, or an apology, or anything um, to this. I mean, day. just to just to say this again. I mean, these are people who are literally just walking around doing their thing in their native country or the chosen native country of Peru, because they happen to have the ethnicity that they're Japanese during World War II. The U.S. government kidnaps them, brings them to the United States, arrests them for bringing them to the United, basically for them entering the United States illegally at the barrel of U.S. guns, moves them around, ends them up on corporate farms where they have to work. <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing to stop from crying. And then at the end of this rainbow, this wonderful rainbow, then they get to stay in the United States, the country that's done all this to them. I mean, <laughs> I know it's, it's a bizarre, like, it's, you know, you can't make this stuff up. History is stranger than fiction. And the, the Higashides end up moving to Hawaii in, at the end of their lives after they were in Chicago and they end up moving to Hawaii in part because I think they had experienced um, uh, racism in, in Chicago as, as Japanese people and Hawaii was a more welcoming place. But yeah, it's, it's definitely bizarre. Um, uh, that's one of the most bizarre episodes in history and it's not one that is known about, you know, the Japanese inter American internment is known about, but this history of uh, Japanese Latin Americans is less, less well known. Uh, you know, next you kind of turn to the plight of folks who were involved in the Cuban boat lift in 1980. Uh, the theory of the case is that these were people who were too dangerous. They, they were basically people who Cuba said were criminals. And so we decide they're too dangerous to release into the U.S. population, even there are, though they're expats from Cuba. Am I following this correctly? Yeah, so 1980, there is an event that happens in Havana where a group of people um, take a bus through the gates of the Peruvian embassy and try to, um, well, claim asylum and say they want to leave uh, Peru. What Fidel Castro does is he removes the guards from around the embassy, so 10,000 people flood in, and Fidel um, says, great, let's get rid of 
let you know we're going to let all these people go so he calls them escoria which means scum and he says you know we don't want these people they're criminals they're gay which was considered sort of antisocial by some of the revolutionaries um they're they're mentally ill and so there was this idea that fidel sort of emptied the mental hospitals emptied the prisons and put allowed these people to to leave so they go on get on these boats and land in in florida in miami um there's some truth to some of the people um being let out of prison some people from mental institutions but it's largely untrue it's so this populate population gets stigmatized as being i imagine some of them were probably just enemies of the state that he wanted to get rid of or something like that yeah or... enemies of the state or people who wanted to escape from from cuba um which and it, you would think is something we would be somewhat supportive of given our stance on cuba as a general rule at this time right, right? and jimmy carter who was president at the time said welcomed them with open arms you know saying you know come to the united states um but they get largely stigmatized as because of those characteristics. This population is also largely black. And unlike the um, refugees who left Cuba in the early 1960s who were wealthier and whiter, this is a sort of demographically different population. So the Cuban Americans, the Cubans in Miami, you know, have a very mixed relationship and reaction to this group of, of refugees. They come in. Um, Reagan takes over, and instead of um, sort of welcoming them, they're afraid. Uh, and so they put all these people in military bases um, to process them. And these people end up in detention for, for several months. Most of them who have connections to family members in the U.S. get paroled. And those ones tended to be the whiter Cubans. The the blacker Cubans or the darker skinned Cubans who didn't have those connections don't tend to get paroled. But the ones who do get um, eventually get paroled into the U.S. When some, you say paroled, that usually assumes that a sentence has been passed. When you say, yeah, so you know, what, the, what, what, when you use that language, why are you? Ch I, I just want to make sure that we understand what the legal situation for these people was at this point. Yeah, so legally they, they've not committed any crimes, but this is what they're, and they actually create a separate category for them as um, entrants for the Haitians and the Cubans, which means they're considered to have entered the country, but for legal purposes, they're considered to still be on the threshold of the country. And the reason why they do that is because if you're on US soil, if you're considered within the United States, you have certain rights. And if you're considered outside of the United States, you virtually have no rights. And so they wanted to keep them in this position more of rightlessness. So by parole, it means that their immigration status had not been resolved. They're basically in the process of trying to get an immigration status, but they're allowed out, out of detention. In those first few years of the 1980s, a certain number of them, um, thousands of them, end up with criminal convictions. Most of those criminal convictions are low-level drug possession charges, like having cocaine, um, 
some of them are assaults. You know, there are very few number of more serious violent um, crimes. So those people are then um, serve their time on their criminal sentences. And when they get out, they are no longer eligible for achieving immigration status based on those criminal charges. So they're put back into prison. Most of them end up in Atlanta Penitentiary and they're basically pending deportation. But because of the relations between the US and Cuba, Cuba does not, says they won't accept these people back. And so these people are, have served whatever criminal um, you know, time they were, they were given but are continuing to be held in prison in a penitentiary along with other people who've been convicted of crimes and for an indefinite sentence. And so in Atlanta penitentiary, they begin to organize and petition for their freedom. And they've come, many of them with very anti-communist beliefs thinking that the US is the land of freedom and liberty. And they're petitioning like, dear Mr. Reagan, like you know, please free us. And there are sort of illusions about what the United States um, was supposed to be confronts the reality of being locked up in a, a penitentiary in Atlanta with without access to um, to freedom and, and without access to protection from the law. So in 1987, eventually the um, US government makes, negotiates an agreement with the Cuban government to accept back uh, uh, just over a thousand of these people. Word gets out in both Atlanta Penitentiary and Oakdale, Louisiana, where there was another detention center that this agreement has been made that they're on the, uh, on the verge of being deported. And they organize almost simultaneously in both of these um, prisons, detention centers, uh, an uprising. They take over the prison, more than a hundred guards are held as hostage. And this becomes the longest lasting prison uprising in the history of the United States. In Atlanta, it lasted for about two weeks. Um, one of the Cubans was shot in the first hours and shot and killed in the first hours of the protest. None of the hostages were um, were harmed, so it ends relatively nonviolently um, after the U.S. government agrees to hear each of their cases individually. So all they're asking for is basically a review of their case to be able to petition for asylum to stay in the United States, um, and eventually, more than a thousand of them. Um, get deported back to, to Cuba. Um, others are able to remain in the United States. But today, some of those same people who remained in the United States still don't have immigration status. So at any time, they could be picked up and deported. And in fact, um, after Obama sort of made that, uh, sort of opened up relations again with Cuba, um, they began to pick up um, more and more Cubans and put them into deportation proceedings. So, um, so it's a really it's a real fear on the part of these people who've been in this country now for what forty years and um, could be deported to Cuba at at any moment. So let's start putting a little of this into into larger context. So we've got kind of the. Uh, 
in a sense, the book, behind the book, in a sense, is the people at Guantanamo Bay. You know, they're not necessarily a big part of the book, but that is, they're a part of the book, I would have to say. At least, you know, the people who still haven't been charged who are sitting there, you know, there's been no process. You've got all of these different stories you tell in the book. Then you also mention the folks who are in civil commitment, uh, who are generally U.S. citizens, but are at places like McNeil Island or Moose Lake in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, how would you, if you're trying to, you know, give the thousand foot view, how would you kind of put all this in context? Yeah, I mean, I think the point of this is looking at these various types of detentions, including civil commitment, including what's going on in Guantanamo, immigrants, um, other people in prisons and jails, is to think more broadly about people who are incarcerated um, against their will. And when you start to do that, you realize that all of these stories are connected. The, the immigrants who are at Atlanta Penitentiary, it's no different for them than someone who, a US citizen has received a criminal conviction and ends up in Atlanta Penitentiary. In fact, the US citizen has more protections <laughs> than the immigrant who doesn't have any criminal conviction, because at least if you've got a criminal conviction, the government has to provide you a lawyer, maybe not a good lawyer, but a lawyer. So the the thousand or 30,000 foot view is that if we're trying to think about mass incarceration and decarceration, we have to think about the various ways in um, in which people are locked up. And so thinking beyond the citizen, non-citizen divide, um, thinking also beyond the borders of the United States, where where are the prisons where people outside the United States are being um, locked up by the United States? Um, Or if we think about immigrants, the US now is paying countries like Mexico and other countries in Central America to detain and deport Central American migrants and other migrants. So the the US basically is outsourcing its whole prison system to the rest of the world. Um, And so if we think about all of that together, I think then we could hopefully, for those people who believe in decarceration and abolition, um, come up with more effective strategies. Because otherwise what happens is the, the government just sort of will find a new way to incarcerate people. So in the beginning of the 20th century is mental hospitals, then they start closing down the mental hospitals and then people are put into jails and prisons. Or now what, recently what's happening is in immigrant detention and to citizens is so-called alternatives to detention, ankle bracelets, other form of technological surveillance. So the prison then moves outside of the prison. So if you don't sort of keep all of these nefarious ways that the the state is trying to lock people up, then reforms could end up becoming the new the new incarceration. I think another thing that I get from the book, at least, is that you know, um, you know, I often suggest to people that rights your rights don't really matter when they aren't being put at risk, and we've heard kind of a lot of talk over the last few years about how now democracy's at risk. And what I think the stories your book tells is that, in a sense, elements of our or what we're supposed to deeply believe in have been in play the entire time and been undercut 
with our full willingness in a lot of cases in a lot of different ways, both uh, in terms of the way we treat people who maybe don't have full constitutional protections and in some cases in the ways that we treat people who are supposed to have full constitutional protections, but that that there's a line that goes through all of them, kind of like a, a dark underbelly to what people call in a positive way the rule of law uh, that allows a lot of the excesses that we believe are probably impossible in our system. Is that fair or? Yeah, and I think, you know, the immigrants are in some sense the canary in the coal mine and we could see that too with citizens, black and brown citizens, other poor citizens who've been subject to um, the criminal justice system and, and incarceration that it's easy to you know, talk about the good immigrants, the bad immigrants, or the criminals and the law-abiding people, but the rights that are taken away from those other people, eventually those rights um, erode for the so-called good people, the citizens, the law-abiding um, people. So, so if, if we really have even self-interest in maintaining these democratic rights, in maintaining the rights of, of liberty, and and uh, some modicum of justice, then we have to be concerned about the people who are experiencing the rightlessness today. Um, and and I think you know what we could see is that creep, like from from either you know whether we're talking about black people in the early late nineteenth, early twentieth century, um, or we're talking about immigrants that the those experiences of, of rightlessness, of um, arbitrary use of the law, eventually will will seep into the, the general society. And yeah, and then when you turn around, all of a sudden democracy is, is very fragile and is at risk. But it's like, if we'd been paying attention all along, we would have realized that we've got to shore up these democratic institutions um, for everybody, especially sort of the least among us. Well, and I also think that at some level, what this is supposed to be is about inherent things that are true about every single being in the universe, you know, every human being in the universe, you know, that they have certain rights that are inalienable. Now, we may say the Constitution doesn't extend to those, but how could you, I don't see how you can believe in that principle and not be destroyed by what happened to Myra or what happened to some of these other people, because regardless of what we say the law means, at the core of it is this idea that there are certain things that we should care about when we deal with other human beings. And we're saying, in essence, that the law can trample on those very things that the law was designed to protect, uh, regardless of who the person is or where they come from. Uh, is that fair or? Yeah, I mean, it, basically what we've done is carved out uh, groups of people who are, are not protected by these same constitutional rights or in the case of citizens, you know, are protected in, in theory. But then in actuality, if you don't have money, you don't have access to good legal counsel um, and the way that the, the laws themselves have been created, you end up those people end up spending more time behind bars. Um, prisons are not filled with, with wealthy people. Prisons are filled with poor people. Um, and it's precisely because those people don't have access 
to um, to legal representation, to the protections that theoretically exist for all of us, but in fact don't. And you know, we have to think about the front end, which is the policing side of this. Who who is targeted for policing? Who is targeted for the kind of arrests, largely arrests for low-level offenses, um, are are not like people on college campuses or people living in, in wealthy suburbs. It's uh, people in poor communities, largely black and brown, who, um, who end up being subject to those arrests and then get funneled into the criminal justice system, which leads them to plea bargain and have records, which ends up leading them to spend years and years behind bars. Um, and so, you know, as you know, there was some progress because of all of the efforts of activists to decarcerate um, in the United States, but we're actually seeing at the federal level that graph go in the, in the opposite direction now under Biden. Well, in both, yeah, in both regular, you know, U.S. citizen incarceration and also in immigration enforcement, my understanding is it's actually increased that 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 detentions have increased quite a bit under Biden, which is. A bit strange, given that the departure point was one of the main departure points, I think, for many people was that Biden was going to be different than Trump on immigration. Am I am I crazy here? Or is... No, you're not crazy. The system is crazy. And that's that's certainly what we thought and hoped. But I think as my book shows and other people have shown, like immigrant anti-immigrant policies is has been bipartisan, um, you know, for for a long time, so Democrats and Republicans. Um, and although the rhetoric, Biden's rhetoric is certainly better than you know the anti-immigrant xenophobia we heard from Trump and Stephen Miller, on the ground, detentions are actually up um, from the end of the Trump year to, um, to Biden. And he's been a huge disappointment, I think, on immigrant rights and on, you know, continuing the terrible policies of Trump in terms of Title 42, which is basically um, just expelling people without any access to apply for asylum based on this putative health health concerns or the remain in Mexico policy, which, you know, has been reinvigorated um, in part because the courts have demanded it. But yeah, I mean, Biden has not has not really turned 180 degrees and in many ways has continued a lot of the same policies that were true under Trump, true under Obama. And uh, it's just going to take a lot of continued activism. Unfortunately, the a lot of the people who were incensed when Trump was doing it now that Biden is in power and is is speaking in more polite terms. They're not as focused on the what's going on on the border, what's going on in terms of immigrant detention. And so it sort of fades. And without that sort of pressure on the street, I think a lot of um, the bad policies will continue. And I think that, you know, we're about to see, you know, one of the questions I'm asking this year is that, you know, we're seeing this come across in kind of a tough on crime narrative dominating 2022. Uh, how do you and, and what you just said is a microcosm of, I think, what's happening, which is the right 
demagogues on tough on crime and the left instead of saying you're wrong and here's the reasons why says no no we're really tough on crime <laughs> and, and they double crack down just to show how tough they really are do you have any kind of theories on how uh people can respond this is the question i've kind of been asking this this year so far uh how people can respond through this election cycle and in the face of things like the homicide spike we talked about earlier yeah, so I think, you know, we have to be really vigilant about the way the media portrays um, certain elements of crime, like the spike in homicides going up, and and be clear that the data shows that overall violent crime is at a, you know, 30-year low. And even, even in the cities where, like Portland, where you do have the spike in homicides, violent crimes are actually down overall um, year over year from 20, you know, 2021 to 2019. Um, and so the data just doesn't support this narrative, but there is a narrative being pushed by the media and politicians that things are out of control. Portland is on fire. Antifa's like running. New York's on fire. San Francisco's yeah. on fire. Yeah. All that, you know, all these places are on fire. It's, it's simply untrue. And anyone who lived through the 1980s will remember this. There was a lot of, you know, law and order um, discourse, uh, hysteria about crime. And so I think that we have to try to bring the data to say like what is the truth about this picture but also to focus on the solution so how are we going to solve the very real problems of social dislocation immiseration homelessness um well, and according to them you just arrest everybody or deport them you know exactly i mean, I mean they've got they've got their answer which is more police uh, and more more incarceration more deportation i think you know the the answer that many other people have given is we need to solve the, the upstream problems that are, are causing these social problems. And so thinking about alternatives to the police um, that are unarmed and that actually try to solve people's problems instead of increasing their problems. And we're pushing that, you know, a lot of people have been pushing that in Portland and other cities across, across the country, but I think we've had limited success because I think this narrative now of out of control crime is then going to is justifying increasing police budgets and doing the same things which got us to the situation of mass incarceration in the first place. So we're at this moment when we need to double down on what we know is the um, uh, the alternative or the transformation from what we have and not return to the same old uh, solutions which are always end badly. Yeah, people uh, really liked last year that I was asking this question, so I'm bringing it back this year. I'm asking if there are any criminal justice-related books that you've read recently that you might recommend to others. If you don't have any, that's fine too. But uh... Yeah, um, there's so many books. I'm just looking um, back here, but the, um, the John Pfaff's work, uh, J James Foreman, um both have been podcast guests so oh, i like great. that <laughs> um, yeah. actually yeah. there's also this uh global book looking at global policing by Stuart trader who um is trying to understand sort of the connections between policing in the united states and how that policing is exported globally 
So I, I think that um, there is amazing scholarship coming out on, um, on criminal justice and the history of policing, the history of, uh, of, of prisons. Um, so we're in a sort of the golden age of that. Unfortunately, it's responding to this terrible situation we're, we're in. But um, uh, the other person who's a favorite of mine is Kelly Lytle Hernandez, a historian who wrote this book, City of Inmates, about sort of the long history of incarceration in Los Angeles, going all the way back to, you know, indigenous, uh, when indigenous people were in that area, all the way up to the present and looking again at um, the variety of ways people are incarcerated um, for immigrant detention, political radicals, um, and then people who are considered just criminals. And where would you recommend best for people to find your book? So if you go to um, Oxford University Press, you could order it directly from them if you want to avoid uh, lining Jeff Bezos's pockets with, um, or your, your local bookstore. But yeah, it's, it's, it's readily accessible. Um, and I think th there's an electronic version. There's even an audiobook version, which I um, uh, have not listened to, but um, people are welcome to listen to it. And yeah, I'm, I just want to thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to talk about it. And anyone else who wants to talk about it, I'm always, eager to 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 share i always ask the same last question what did i mess up what question should i have asked but did not you've not messed up at all if my <laughs> if my uh airpods uh wouldn't have fallen out i guess that would have been uh, mine did too so. yeah <laughs> so you can't can't prevent that no it's um it's great to have this conversation with someone who is so sort of steeped in this um, in this work and and the longer history of of mass incarceration. So I just want to thank you for the opportunity. Oh, and thank you so much for doing this. It was a real pleasure and I really enjoyed the book. Great. Well, hopefully we'll continue the conversation. I hope so. And now my take. I've said this many times before. People behind bars are people behind bars. And what we should care the most about is not where those people are from or what those people have done, but we should care the most about how we treat those people entrusted to our care. How they treated others is on them and they have to be accountable for what they did. But how we treat them while they are in our care is on us and no amount of rationalization about why people deserve punishment will absolve us of that moral responsibility that we all bear because we are members of the society that creates and accepts that punishment. And when it comes to the stories of families torn apart, people sent back to some country that they never even lived in because the letter of the law is more important than the spirit of the law, or people who never did more than violate a traffic law stuck in facilities for years simply because they were here illegally, I fear that our karmic debt as a society grows beyond anything we could ever pay back. I hear a lot of politicians talking about what a great country we are, and in some ways, a lot of ways, that is probably true, but in my opinion, a great country would never split a mom from her kids and send her to a country which, where she's never lived uh, for, for at least not for decades prior to her deportation over a traffic ticket 
And a great country would never, ever kidnap people uh, in another country and incarcerate them because that because they happen to be of a nationality we were suspicious of or in conflict with. I don't want to sound like I don't believe in America. I do. I deeply believe in our ideals. That's a lot of why I do this podcast. And every once in a while, while we do some things that are amazing, I just think we have to deeply reflect on the massive difference between our ideals and our laws and the difference between our ideals and the enforcement of our laws. And I think we have to stop trying to erase the bad things that we've done from our history and instead be accountable for them. We tell people who have committed crimes, like myself, that we need to be accountable. Well, like us, America needs to be accountable too and needs to live up to the ideals, the idea that every human being should be treated with dignity at all times. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or or who have given a donation. You can also support us in other non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review from iTunes or add us on Stitcher, Spotify, or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for you. To Ann Espo for helping with our transcripts and social media images. And to Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time. <laughs>